This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. On this, the 24th of February, we welcome you to Real Talk. Jesperson Hicks and another... Kind of sounds like a law firm, actually. Jesperson Hicks, I like that. And Associates. Uh, in just a second, a familiar face, Sapria Devetti, has been joining us on Fridays. Of course, you know Sapria and I, on Wednesdays, uh, have been bringing you what we hope is Canada's favorite federal politics podcast. Seriously, but it's but it's been gone for a few weeks, and, and I know that some of you have had questions, and we're looking forward to catching back up with Sapria. And we're going to talk about real life today. Coming up in about a half an hour. Is Canada broken? Three professors from our nation's capital, from the University of Ottawa, are going to join us to talk about this Rouleau report. You know, Justice Paul Rouleau ruling on whether or not this is that final report on whether or not this is the Public Order Emergency Commission. Was the federal government correct uh, or justified in invoking the Emergencies Act? But bigger picture, what does this mean uh, for upcoming crises in Canada? I mean, what is, for example, blocking the Ambassador Bridge uh, blocking trade between Canada and the U.S., putting our nation's capital into a stranglehold, occupying downtown Ottawa for weeks on end. What does that have to do with, for example, an upcoming climate crisis? What does this have to do, generally speaking, bigger picture with whether or not Canadians prioritize or have the capability uh, to preserve the rule of law? We're going to get into that with Nomi Claire Lazar, Vanessa McDonald, and Michael Kempa. That will be our Real Talk Roundtable today presented by Urban Timber. And what I think is probably the biggest banger of a trash talk that we've ever had. And I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've been telling you all week. We got an email. Uh, what day was it? It was uh, it was on Tuesday from Michael, uh, who listens to Real Talk from Victoria, B.C., and he just takes it to me. And at the end of Michael's email, I thought, yeah, he might actually be right. And so I've been looking forward to this. Danny, the disgruntled oil field wife, and Tanya, Slava Ukraine, also featured in Trash Talk, presented by Local Environmental Services. That's coming up before the show is done. We're grateful to have you here with us, Sapria Devetti. Uh, I mean, it's not a competition, but we've introduced her before as uh, one of the show's best friends. Uh, obviously, uh, I know a lot of you feel the same way, and uh, we haven't seen her face for a couple of weeks, and it's a pleasure to welcome her back, although it's, it's a bit of a tough circumstance right now. Sapria, and we're grateful to have you here with us, uh, my friend. I wish I was there with you in person. Sometimes it's cool that we can do this thing from from Alberta and Ontario, but sometimes it'd be cool to just be able to grab lunch or grab a coffee together. And this is one of those times. How have you been holding up? Yeah, um, not great. So I, I don't know how you want to do this. I think I should just say it in like one go yeah. if you think, because I don't know if I'm going to break out into tears. Um, so I'm just going to say it aloud and then it'll be out there and then we, you can ask me questions and we can go from there. Let's so, do it. Yeah. So the reason why um, the people haven't seen my face around and, you know, I've been kind of off of social media the last little bit uh, is because recently um, my husband was diagnosed with cancer um, and it's stage four um, lung cancer. He is 40 years old. Um, he has never smoked a day in his life. Um, and it is obviously a very big shock for our family. And so, you know, you and I um, 
have been having our chats, I, I guess, uh, <laughs> as as you know, I regularly and as frequently as as we were, and as I think we'd like. But mm. I think for any normal human being, they would completely understand why I've uh, sort of tapped out of public commentary um, right now because my focus is, of course, my my husband and and our daughter, and um, yeah, just trying to get through this time. Yeah. So uh, you, you said you might break out into tears. I might break out into tears. Just yeah. This is this is like in, in, in the conversations that you and I have had off of the air and off yep. the record, just just friends talking to each other. Obviously, there's a there's a, a, a huge element of shock. Um, and uh, and and we feel this and Johnny feels this and our team is feeling this. So I can't imagine how you feel, by the way. Um, want to let people know that that you know you said you were like let's let's hop on real talk on friday and get everybody up to speed and just let everyone know that what's happening with seriously which is that uh the show is fine uh, but we're going to go on a bit of a hiatus because yeah. we're prioritizing what's important and you need your strength and your energy to be with your man and to be with your beautiful little girl and, and, and the rest of your family. Um, as we're talking about this, though, your willingness to come on the show today, I want to let you know that if, if you ever kind of like lose the appetite to talk about it, we, we can just wrap it up. So, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I would have said this. Our to safe you, word can be can be tippy toe. You, or you <laughs> yeah. just turn just put your laptop down and, and we'll take yeah. the hint. So, um, you, you know, stage four, obviously, it's a bit of a different circumstance than something being detected early. How, how did it wind up on the Noob's radar? How did, how, did, how did this come about? This was pretty recently. Yeah. So um, he has uh, an autoimmune condition. And so he gets, sees a pulmonologist pretty regularly. And they um, do, from time to time, scans on his lungs. And in September, um, they found uh, a small growth. And for whatever fucking reason um they decided that they were going to wait three months basically to see what the rate of growth was um so they did uh it grew um then they did a biopsy and then in january um it came back it was cancerous then he had to get like a bunch of scans done right an mri and a pet scan um those showed that it had metastasized to different areas of his body and that what we were dealing with um, was going to be stage four. And I mean, you know, one thing I will say that's been very surprising to me about this entire situation is that you get these like absolutely devastating, um, you know, pathology or radiology reports and um, there's no medical guidance. <laughs> you don't have any conversation with like a physician or, or a healthcare provider or professional right away they just kind of show up on your online portal and i mean it's it's not the best um getting these reports without a conversation with with a doctor or a nurse or somebody that can guide you through this and i mean like i have a, i'm pretty medically literate right i i think i've mentioned this to you before i have a weird amount of doctor friends in my immediate circle that I can sort of lean on uh, pretty, pretty regularly. Um, but if you don't have that, uh, and if you, you know, let's say English isn't even your first language, I can't imagine what other families uh, go through when they get these sorts of things. And I don't know, um, it's uh, in terms of like psychosocial support or like mental health support, like that's like virtually non-existent. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're, my husband's getting treated at arguably the best cancer center in the country, right? At Princess Margaret Hospital in, in Toronto, um, top five or something like that in the world. 
And it's very, very difficult to navigate um, caregiver support or patient support. You know, I've been looking into like how exactly I should be framing the sort of thing to, to my daughter. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And there's no guide. Um, I mean, I guess, first of all, can I just say, um, this is probably going to be obviously the most personal chat that you and I have ever, have ever had in front of other people. And, yeah. um, so I just hope that these names mean something. These are real people that are, that are sending you messages in our live chat right now. These are real human beings that are watching right now. They're typing, um, there's emojis of hearts and, and the hands together in prayer and, and people like Jason and Sharon and Artemis and Kathy and Tracy and David, Sharon and Rose, I mean, they're, they're all sending their love to you. And I'm sure that, that your family has been, um, I know that you guys have a, a support network yeah, like most people do. do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody knows how to navigate it. And there's, there's so many personal elements to this. Um, with this story, your husband's age, like number one, the fact that you have a young daughter, these are things that all demand consideration with regards to like unique <laughs> coping tools. You know, one of the first things I thought of was that in our past conversations, you and me talking about the Ontario election, Ontario's most recent election, for example, you were banging the drum, demanding more talk on healthcare the entire time. The cruel irony of that is is not knowing at the time, uh, you know, (laughs) about the fight that your entire family was about to embark on. Right. And and now, uh, obviously, unfortunately, it goes without saying. um, And in in a tragic sense, you have this front row seat, this this cruel reality of some of the challenges that people encounter navigating the healthcare system when quite literally someone's going to be fighting for their life. Yeah, totally. And I I just I do want to say the oncologists that we've met with have been absolutely wonderful. And his healthcare team right now is, you know, um, just stellar. They answer all of our questions. How uh, You know, I I come always with uh, a gajillion very dumb questions in a lot of cases. And they're they're very patient and and very understanding. But, um, you know, there was one his initial meeting with with this thoracic surgeon and like it was just so ridiculous because this was like the first meeting we've had since obtaining the PET scan results, right? And like it indicated it was stage four. I knew that because I, you know, I I know how to read. Um, but the surgeon was trying to end the appointment with my husband without clearly communicating or communicating at all what stage his cancer was or that there was no surgical solution. And I mean, it took me thirty seconds of reading his PET scan his PET scan results to know that there was not really going to be a surgical solution here. And then when I pointed out to the surgeon that he was, you know, effectively ending the meeting without clearly communicating anything to my husband, um, he got super defensive and told me, and this is a quote, I get that you're an emotional wife right now, but you only have one patient to look after for your husband. I have dozens and dozens of patients to think about right now. And I was just like, okay, is that the kind of thing you should probably be saying to, you know, uh, a young couple that's and I, I and I was completely respectful. I just wanted to ensure that my husband had the information coming to him from a medical professional and, you know, not me kind of gleaming together what I thought it was based on my own understanding, as well as like input from, you know, friends of mine in a group chat. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be sort of like, you know, plotting out or at least, you know, gleaning your understanding of a situation, plotting out your family's game plan from WebMD totally. or something. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. something like this, um, I think the very first comment in the entire live chat, we started 
talking was fuck cancer. And uh, these, yeah. this is because, I mean, I, you know, have you ever, you know, you meet a lot of people that, that would never use the F word until they're talking about cancer. <laughs> and then they'll put that bumper sticker on their car because it has impacted almost everybody in different ways. This is impacting you in a viscerally personal way. This is not the way that it's supposed to go, right? But, but people here are sharing their personal experiences. You know, Aitken here in the live chat says our healthcare system's truly broken. We have to do better. This is inexcusable, right? I mean, others are saying, you know, Tanya, for example, says before the times of online health records, these conversations would have come via a physician. We clearly haven't figured out how to manage the change, uh, which is an interesting observation. And she goes on to say, by the way, surgeons don't get through school for their personalities. I, I, yeah, you, they you, do you, not. You got to kind of be careful. I, I say this all the time to my lawyer friends uh, with a chuckle. We, it's, it's not fair for us to paint entire professions as having one personality trait or as, as being one type of person. But in a lot of industries, and I, and I think that high achieving and very intelligent surgeons or physicians would be an example. It doesn't necessarily come with that bedside manner. I'm not saying every doctor. Some of them are phenomenal. We're going to talk to Shazma Mathani, an ER doctor, next Wednesday. I mean, her communication skills are off the charts. Uh, but there's a lot that do not have that. And uh, and I think that it, it, it just goes to show. I mean, when we talk about bringing improvements to healthcare, making healthcare more personal, more empathetic, I mean, what an example. I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm just. No, 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 not at all. But like, but that's a very good point. And, you know, I've said this. I don't know if I've ever said this on your show, but like the a big problem with the way our healthcare system sort of works right now is that there's this huge sort of like incredibly imbalanced relationship dynamic, right? And like patients in Canada don't have a ton of rights. Um, mm. We don't have a ton of recourses um, in terms of how we hold bad, and I'm putting that in air quotes, but bad doctors uh, accountable um, is like virtually non-existent. And in a lot of ways, it's somewhat analogous to the way we um, provide oversight and accountability for cops because it's like cops investigating other cops and often it's doctors investigating other doctors. And like if you there's a camaraderie and there's this sort of code, I think that's kind of um, sprinkled throughout the the profession in which you can draw similarities and parallels from from both. And and I just don't think it's a, a healthy sort of way to go about um, the, you know, how we how we govern mm-hmm. this very intimate relationship in, in a lot of ways and, and a necessary yeah. one right yeah i haven't told you this yet but just because we've we've kind of kept our conversations brief because i you know it's it's interesting when you're on the on the outside so to speak but as somebody you you deeply care about like our dynamic and our friendship by the way some people are like we're so glad to see that ryan and sapria weren't at odds i guess that was <laughs> that was one of the assumptions of why we weren't doing our show but of course not it's quite the opposite um but uh we wanted to keep the focus on you. I haven't told you that a dear friend of ours, I won't, I won't uh, say her name, it doesn't matter, but, but she's been diagnosed with uh, pretty serious ovarian cancer and, and, she, and she's not even 40. And, uh, and, and it's, it's one of those things where she is, like I would describe you and your husband, she's like gregarious, she's the life of the party, she's surrounded by a circle of friends, she's a very confident person, she's very intuitive, she's a high achiever professionally, all these things, but that doesn't mean that somebody is equipped with the emotional resources or the emotional supports or the, or the, or the specific wherewithal that you need to hit something like this head on. And it's so important. And and this is something that we're seeing here in Alberta with her and people that are understanding how to navigate what's going to be a very serious challenge. This is the most serious challenge that she'll ever have probably, or that she's had to this point in her life. But, but it's something that I think maybe in the healthcare system we take for granted. Like maybe we underestimate the need for psychological supports on a physical fight. Yeah. And it's interesting because we talk a big game, 
right? We mm. talk like we ever like mental health is health and we need supports. And, you know, there's all these like they claim to have all these psychosocial supports. Like there are all these like numbers you call, but you call the number and it rings and rings and rings and rings and rings and rings and nobody picks it up. You you know, I've mentioned to my husband's care team that we're, this is the sort of thing that, that we're looking for to help navigate this. And I'm I'm you know positive that they've put the, the request through it just um you know, hasn't hasn't come around yet. And and I understand like our, the healthcare system is strained and I, and I understand, um, you know, hospitals are, are short staffed and people are doing uh, a good a bunch of things all at once. I, I get all that. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the plight of the healthcare workers that are like in the system on the ground right now as it sort of like collapses all around us. But um, I don't know, this is well, it's uh, it's it's been very difficult. And and again, at the same time, I, I consider myself lucky. I, I have a friend whose sister is um, undergoing chemotherapy in Montreal, and her chemotherapy was delayed by five weeks because they're short-staffed at the hospital um, that she's receiving chemotherapy at. Like, it, can you imagine? Like, this is—I don't know. It's just—it just seems like there are all these these issues, and they've been simmering. And to your point, you know, I've been banging the drum. A lot of folks have been trying to talk about this, but we just seem to be doing um, the same thing over and over again, which is to ignore it. And when we stop ignoring it, we just throw more cash at the problem um, without questioning whether or not the cash is going to solve the problem or like what the actual issues are and how we can go about improving our healthcare system substantively and have a grown up conversation about it in a way that doesn't just, uh, you know, peg us or compare us to the American system. Mm. A lot of people are this is resonating with them and I'm and, and are grateful and I'm grateful that you're willing to talk about this. Uh, you know, Michelle says uh, healthcare is a mess in Alberta. She's talking about says her sister couldn't get proper tests for what turned out to be ovarian cancer, uh, says her doctor, who happens to be a female, wound up in our interpretation dismissing my sister's yeah. symptoms this is not me trying to put you know, everyone knows my dad was a physician for 40 years I, I grew up around nurses i'm not we're not piling on professionals we're calling spades spades that's the role of a talk show i think in conversations like this is to hold systems accountable and, and to conduct citizen audits if you want to call it that you know ma says the burnout rate of healthcare workers doctors included is through the roof right now mm -hmm. they have no support from government either right uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not blind to that. No, at I all. know you're not. Like, and, hope, and, yeah. Hey, speak your truth. You, you don't have to make any apologies. <laughs> no one's asking for that. Lou says you have huge courage, Sapria, to talk about how little help you're actually getting in so many ways. Rose is asking what probably most of us are wondering. Uh, divulge what you like. She's just wondering where do you go from here. People care about you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, my husband's undergoing chemotherapy and immunotherapy as well as a pretty aggressive radiation uh, round. Um, so the chemotherapy has actually been put on hold momentarily while he undergoes radiation. He's had one course of chemo. Um, now it's just like he gets his treatment um, over the next nine-ish weeks. Um, and that includes chemotherapy. And then we uh, and then we wait. And then we see. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, um, I hope that you're feeling like I hope you can feel it in your spine uh, people sending like love and energy and good vibes and, and all of the things that we say to try to convey in uh, circumstances where 
our language tools are often inadequate, uh, how much we care for somebody and, and for their immediate circle, for Anoop and, and for the rest of your family. Um, I'm grateful that you're able to join us today because it's just nice to see your face again and to connect Thanks. with you. And obviously, we'll be here for you in whichever way you need us. And I know Real Talkers will be eager that when the time is right, uh, we'll be able to get you back on a regular schedule. And in the meantime, your priorities are exactly where they need to be. Uh, we love you all very much. Uh, we're wishing him the very best. Um, you know, back in, in my days, my religiously influenced days, Supriya, we used to pray for strength and wisdom for the surgeons and for the attending medical professionals. And we just wish all of that upon you and your family. We care about you very deeply, my friend. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. Talk okay. to you soon, buddy. Yeah, you got it. That's Supriya Devetti, uh, a dear friend of this show, a dear friend of mine. And uh, and I know that uh, based on the comments here, I just want to thank Real Talkers. I know I didn't read all of these. This live chat is, Johnny, you're keeping an eye on this. This is really something to see today. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that stories like this resonate with a lot of people because uh, tragically and unfortunately, people can relate. And a lot of you are sharing your own family's personal stories. And, uh, and uh, obviously now, you know, uh, if you want to just, here's what I think. I think sometimes... You'll have these moments right now where Supriya comes on this show, and for these 20 minutes, um, a lot of people are going to be sending her messages, and some of you will probably reach out to her and send her a note on Twitter, and then the podcast will land later this afternoon, and there will be another wave. Um, but then there are going to be these quiet moments, right, as, as life goes on and as the weeks progress and as his therapy progresses. And many of you are probably listening to this maybe with tears in your eyes because you have a family member. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your son or daughter. Maybe it's your parents that are currently undergoing something exactly like this. You can walk a mile in these shoes. You do every single day. You know these notes of encouragement that you can send in those quiet moments, unprompted, out of nowhere, I know mean a lot. And you can always send us notes to the show as well. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. If this conversation has resonated with you, well, it's obviously resonated with a lot of you. You know what I'm saying. If you want to add some insights into this, if you have a personal story you'd like to share that can help deepen our understanding, maybe you're an oncologist listening to this. Maybe you're a nurse in, in an oncology ward that has some insight into the, the challenges of providing health care. Uh, maybe you feel healthcare workers have been unfairly painted in this conversation. We want to be able to create space and make space for these types of conversations. And we always appreciate hearing from you. As a matter of fact, I want to get to a couple of emails. Uh, I will before the show is out. Uh, for, uh, many of you were in touch with us following our conversation with Justin Bourne earlier this week on Tuesday. His book, Down and Back, talking about his journey with alcohol and family and, and hockey. And it's resonated with a ton of you. We have, we have one here from Anna that, that wow. I mean, it's 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 never lost on us. We read that email yesterday. I think it was from Kathy that, that wrote in talking about her feelings about the defund the police movement based on her son's mental health journey. Um, it means a lot to us when you trust us with your stories and trust us to share them with the Real Talk audience. These conversations are presented by sponsors. I and mean, we talk about family right now. This is a family-owned business, the team at Grand Dog Essentials. Um, we feed our family members, Moses and Monroe, our beautiful boxer and lab, their quality raw food. And, and we've been customers of Grand Dog Essentials long before we started doing business with them. They've got a special right now. If you're looking to shake up your dog's diet, maybe there are some health issues you're looking to attend to. Maybe you've been learning a little bit more about the importance of protein in a canine diet through the month of February. So this is coming to an end pretty quickly. Their Doggy Moggy blend. This is the beef chicken blend that Monroe's been enjoying. Uh, 40 pound boxes of raw pet food. It arrives frozen, delivered to your door. You thaw it out as you need it every day. It's on sale for 20% off the regular price. That's $73.50 for 40 pounds on a box, depending on the size of your dog. Obviously, depends on how long that'll last you. The discount code BC. 
2023. That checkout will help kick in that 20% savings. Uh, orders placed all the way through till February 28 are eligible for the discount, and there's no limit to the amount of times this discount code can be used. So if you want to fill your freezer, you go ahead and use the discount code BC2023 to knock 20% off the regular price of the Doggy Moggy Blend at granddog.ca, delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. This studio that we're broadcasting out of was proudly built by Complete Care Restoration, and we are proud to give them two thumbs up when it comes to construction and renovation projects, but also, of course, in the, I mean, unlikely circumstance, but it does happen that you encounter or sustain fire damage, flooding. I mean, this is the time of year, obviously, temperatures in our neck of the woods right now. We're getting into pipes bursting territory. Don't wish that on anybody. Knock on wood. If that is the nightmare that you're dealing with, we recommend that you immediately contact Complete Care Restoration. They also do, by the way, mold and asbestos removal. Maybe you're kicking off a renovation project. You you found something gnarly in the walls you weren't expecting. Your insurance company, chances are through your policy, has got to go with the company you choose. I recommend personally that you choose Complete Care Restoration. Speaking of improvements to your home, if this spring is going to mean a solar panel installation on your property, maybe it's your residence, maybe it's your commercial property, with the cold Canadian winter, with the rise in energy costs, there's no better time to start thinking about setting yourself some new energy savings goals. Solar energy here is used by the home first, right? And then excess energy can be sold back to the retailer for credits. So in the winter months, it may not be the circumstance, but in the summer months, you can build up huge credits and use them over the less sunny winter months. It can make your energy affordable 12 months a year. The team at Kubi is ready to answer your questions, or you can check out the blog link at kubienergy.ca. Great resources there. And of course, the quotes that you can get come for free. Free quotes from the team at Kubi Energy. We also wanted to give a big shout out this morning to our friends at Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned for more than 65 years in 16 different Alberta communities. And all 16 of those stores coming up next Wednesday. That's the 1st of March. You know, I'm just reminding you so you have it circled on your calendar, 15% off all grocery bills, $75 or more. That's a huge deal for families looking to keep more money in their jeans. You can also check out the Family Essentials Flyer online at Friesen.com. As a family business started way back in 1955, Friesen Brothers has always been focused on family. That's why they've developed their range of family essentials to help you save on the everyday products that you use the most. And a big shout out as well to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. If you don't feel like cooking this weekend, if you're feeling like maybe sinking your teeth into those all tenderloin chicken strips that Dairy Queen's so famous for, why not swing by a DQ in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, my home location of Westmount, or of course, Baseline Road in Sherwood Park. That's one of the five busiest Dairy Queens in the country. They've just done a beautiful renovation. You have to check it out. Their crispy chicken strips doused with your favorite wing sauce are worth the trip. Plus, They've got them all covered with that honey barbecue sauced and tossed chicken strip basket with those crispy DQ fries. You can find them, of course, at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. 
Our Real Talk Roundtable coming up in just a few minutes. We're going we're gonna to answer the question, or at least endeavor to answer it. Is Canada broken? You hear politicians insisting that it is, and the evidence that they point to, that Ottawa occupation, that freedom convoy, the disgruntled Canadians that turned up in the nation's capital to send a very clear message to government and to their fellow countrymen and women. But is it accurate? This Rouleau report, Justice Paul Rouleau releasing his findings on whether or not the federal government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act has drawn the attention of three of our experts out of the University of Ottawa, and they're going to join us in just a minute or two. Uh, I noticed, by the way, I wanted to mention this quickly. Someone in our live chat said, you know, the different personalities of, of medical professionals, Dr. Glaucomflecken, which is a well-followed uh, social media personality, uh, says he covers this, his personality. Someone said it'd be great to get him on the show. I wanted to let you know he was on Real Talk uh, back on November 9th of 2021. And you can check out our archives, Dr. Glaucomflecken, on the show. You can find that in our YouTube archive or wherever you get your podcast. Dr. Glaucom Flecken, that was a very memorable interview back on November 9th of 2021. We spoke to Justin Bourne earlier this week. He's a Sportsnet personality. If you watch hockey on Sportsnet, you probably have seen him. He's the uh, the son of legendary Islanders player Bill Bourne, and he had his own pro hockey career as well that was interrupted and, and quite likely stunted by his alcohol use. He told us as much in his interview on Tuesday. If you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to do so. But it got a lot of you thinking, and we wanted to make some time this morning to read a couple of your emails. They really got us thinking, and we appreciate that. Paul wrote in to talk at RyanJesperson.com, said, Jesper, really great show with Justin Bourne. By shining a light on so-called heavy drinking, your guest nicely exposed how alcoholics fool themselves. I really liked how he didn't preach. He didn't talk about that singular moment, that epiphany. Instead, he had great compassion and common sense. Paul says the discussion with Justin on Tuesday reminded me to ask you, Ryan, about the shocking amount of gambling ads on sports TV these days, on live broadcasts. What the hell are our sports idols doing participating in this? Why do millionaire hockey players have to promote online gambling? That from Paul. And how about this one from Anna? Anna says, I just want to thank you and Johnny and your team for this week's feature on addiction with Justin Bourne. Anna says it really hit home. Our daughter, 19 years of age, top of her class, gifted, beautiful, social, full of potential, big goals, uh, has had problems that started with an ex-boyfriend who sexually assaulted her a year ago. She managed the trauma and shame by going out with friends every weekend and getting drunk. I don't drink. My husband's a a beer a day kind of a guy, but we talk about safe consumption. Call us anytime, anywhere. No secrets, no judgment, no shame. If she came home drunk three weekends in a row, we'd talk about moderation. Have fun, but make sure you can have sober fun too. And then she dated a girl who was addicted to cannabis. And then that quickly normalized the use of edibles. And by the time she left that relationship six months later, she herself had developed an addiction. We had honest talks about how to know if you've got a problem. Can you stop? Can you stay stopped? When you're not drinking or using, how much space does that take up in your head? Are you white-knuckling it until the next drink or the next use? It took her a year to develop a full-blown addiction. Our daughter just got a sponsor and attended a Narcotics, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting tonight. This email just arrived. 30 minutes later, she's showing me with deep gulping sobs what she's going to use to get high. 
She's crying and hating herself and worried that she's killing all of her beautiful brain cells. She's in the grip of the disease. I ask if she wants to call her sponsor. She can call even if she's using or planning to use, but she refuses. I ask her if I can watch TV near where she's using so I can make sure she doesn't overdose. She says, sure, she's scared, but she'll still get high. She'll meet tomorrow with her sponsor and she'll be honest. And if she isn't desperate enough for recovery, she'll get drunk or high again. So her dad and I wait and we take it a day at a time. We've started attending Al-Anon and Naranon NA, and it helps sometimes. Last night, a parent talked about her own adult son who didn't survive his addiction. Fear grips my heart. What will I do if her story becomes my story? We know that we are not the solution. We just create a non-judging space where she can show up in whatever state she's in. I encourage her to talk about it. Tell your sisters. Tell your friends. Don't let the disease shame you. Recovery is a journey of humility and honesty and, yes, desperation. I hope she finds what your guest, Justin Bourne, found. I know we're not alone in this. We need to talk about it. Not when it's fixed. Not when things are okay. But right now, in the thick of it, without any solution, without any certainty, this is when loved ones and addicts need support the most. How do we bring transparency and authenticity to this messy journey now? I don't want to wait to tell her story. Her life matters now. Anna says, thanks for letting me share. I'm available for anyone who needs to talk. Talking helps me too. Now from Anna. That's the real deal. We walk with these stories that you share with us, and it fuels our editorial journey. It impacts who we reach out to on the show and who we bring onto this platform to get us all thinking. I told you on Tuesday that it was an email from Jamie, a real talker, about drinking that prompted us to reach out to Justin Bourne in the first place. Please don't hesitate to be in touch. This Real Talk Roundtable is presented by Urban Timber. In 30 seconds, we're going to introduce you to our guests. First, I want to draw your attention to urbantimber.ca. Their brand new showroom is now packed full of new furniture designs and your favorite traditional classics. Now, they've got a full lineup of live-edge epoxy tables. Those tables are absolutely stunning. Reclaimed boxcar furniture. These are the ones we've been talking about. These these huge planks that, that formed the floors of the boxcars, the train cars that rolled across this country for decades and decades. I mean, some of them more than 100 years old. And a whole lot more leading up to their Super Saturday sale. If you're thinking about a table from Urban Timber like we did, now's the time to see all of their custom-made selections in person. It's such an easy process to own the table of your dreams made just for you in a matter of just a few weeks. Setup and delivery also included in all their dining room tables. They handled it all for us. We didn't have to worry about transporting it, setting it up. We wanted to tweak exactly where it was in the studio. They were more than happy to help. This Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., you can come on into their West Edmonton showroom. You can find all the details at urbantimber.ca. Come find out why their three-year-old daughter voted their new space showroom of the year. Bring the story home with Urban Timber Reclaimed Wood. Hard to believe it's been a year. 
since a truck convoy traveled across the country, culminating in an occupation of our nation's capital for weeks on end. It included the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge, limiting trade to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars between Canada and the U.S. and, of course, the infamous Coots border blockade in southern Alberta as well. Justice Paul Rouleau has just recently, about a week ago, released his final report, the Emergencies Act Inquiry Final Report, otherwise known as the Rouleau Report. Uh, A reminder, so writes one of our guests, that we all have a role in upholding the rule of law. But what does it mean for the country moving forward? As some politicians insist, citing that Ottawa occupation as evidence, is Canada broken? Let's get into it with three professors out of our nation's capital. Nomi Claire Lazar is a professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the U of O, author of the book States of Emergencies in Liberal Democracies. Professor Lazar sat on the Research Council of the Rouleau Commission, but joins us here in a personal capacity. Uh, Vanessa McDonald is a graduate of Harvard Law, an associate professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law and co-director of the U Ottawa Public Law Center. She's an expert in criminal and constitutional law. And Michael Kempa is a criminologist at the University of Ottawa, specializing in the politics of policing and security. He's currently focused on the collapse of the security system under the weight of the Freedom Convoy in the academy and media. And uh, Professor McDonald, I owe you an apology. I know you did not write that you're a graduate of Harvard Law in your bio, but when I see that, I just have to say it. I couldn't help myself. Uh, <laughs> Professor Lazar, you, you are the one that that, that uh, obviously was our direct contact. Welcome back to Real Talk. We've spoken to you uh, about this before. I think a lot of Canadians, uh, the average citizen, can get a little bit lost with all of the news swirling around. There's a lot happening, obviously, the fallout from this occupation. Why don't we talk first of the mandate of this report, of what Justice Rula found, and of course, the significance of it with regards to moving forward. I've seen you argue personally, this isn't just about looking back. So I do think that uh, Canadians are faced with a lot of uh, information and different viewpoints coming at them, uh, some, some of them better informed than others. But this is really a critical juncture for the rule of law in Canada. So uh, I would love to see as many Canadians as possible get it, get informed and get involved. Uh, so in terms of the mandate for the Rouleau Commission, the way that our Emergencies Act is designed is to be as accountable as possible. So historically, emergency powers often have given you know, huge amounts of unaccountable power to the executive. And this particular piece of legislation is designed uh, with these layers of accountability. So at the front end, uh, the legislation states clearly that uh, any action has to be compatible with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the International Covenant on Civil and Political uh, Rights. Uh, And then we have all of this parliamentary oversight. So although the executive unusually, the executive power can act uh, before the legislature approves that action, very shortly after parliament can um, negate anything that the executive decides to do. So if, you know, say Trudeau said, you know, declared a state of emergency right now for no good reason, Parliament could uh, could nix that, uh, right, pretty much you know, within a, a few days. So we do have those safeguards. And then we, uh, after the fact, we do have this uh, commission. So the law requires the commission. Uh, so it's not up to the executive. If you use emergency powers, there's going to be an inquiry. So you have to know as an executive that 
uh, you're not going to get away with anything, that there is going to be this scrutiny of your actions. And that serves a couple of purposes. The first purpose is that it's kind of like putting a little guy on the shoulder of the executive uh, who's saying, you know, it, do you really want to do this? Is this really a wise idea? Um, do you really want people knowing you did this uh, and for that to go down in history uh, and for, for that to be in front of the voters in the next election? So because the prime minister, because the executive power knows that after the fact, there's going to be this scrutiny, they kind of self-police, ideally. So that's the first pur purpose of having a commission required in the law. The second purpose is that the commission then lays before the Canadian public this mass of information and evidence that has been gathered because it's really important that Canadians understand their role in this process. It doesn't end with the Rouleau Commission. Now the evidence is in front of us. We are sovereign. The people are sovereign. And it's now our job to hold government to account, uh, to account. This is public accountability, not just legal accountability. So that's partly why I say that we shouldn't see, we shouldn't just look backward with the Rouleau Commission, but we should look forward both with respect to what possible, uh, uh, you know, what, what needs to be fixed. And I know my colleagues are going to have some views about this, as do I, but also that we Canadians should say, it's not just what uh, uh, Commissioner Rouleau has decided, but we also get to decide whether we think this is justified, and we get to have that say uh, at the polls as well as right now in our public conversations. Yeah, and by, by the way, just let me spell it out. I want to encourage all three of you to like jump in. Feel free to interrupt each other. Feel free to tell me my questions are stupid. I do have focused questions for each of you. Oh, and let me, I want to give shouts out to each of your work because you've all done a ton on this public facing as well. Uh, you know, coming up, Michael will mention your, your piece in the National Post. Uh, Nomi, your piece, theconversation.com. People can read that as well. Emergencies Act, increase final report, a reminder. We all have a role in upholding the rule of law. Um, before we get to focused questions, let me just ask the panel, does anybody here actually believe that a federal government, and I'm not saying they didn't, I'm, I'm just asking the question, does anybody here believe that it would be, that, that, that the federal government's chomping at the bit, that politicians would be super eager to invoke the Emergencies Act in what some sort of a, a, a hungry power grab to take control or shut down people's bank accounts? I mean, it seems to me to be such a political liability or a potential liability, such a hot potato. I find it hard to believe that a federal government would do something like this willy-nilly. Comments from the panel? I'm, I might just jump in here to say that, uh, so in addition to uh, the Rouleau Commission report, another kind of ongoing measure of accountability is that um, judicial review of the decision to declare the state of emergency has also been brought and the regulations that were promulgated uh, pursuant to the declaration, uh, they've also been challenged in court. And so there is also going to be this court challenge that's proceeding. and. Um, one of the interesting things in that challenge um, that that I think actually goes both ways is, is you know, the lawyers are saying, look, um, we shouldn't have used the act here um, because we've gotten through terrorist acts, uh, a global pandemic, and we never saw fit to declare the act or to declare an emergency under those circumstances. How could it be that this situation then justified a declaration of emergency. Um, I guess that's one side of the coin, but the other side of the coin to me is, is this point that you're making, which is um, that, that uh, there have been circumstances where arguably emergencies legislation um, could have been invoked and it wasn't. 
Um, and I think, you know, that does demonstrate, and this comes out in the Rouleau Commission report as well. It turns out that, you know, the federal executive was pretty familiar with the legislation because during the COVID pandemic, there had been discussions at various points about whether a declaration of emergency should be made and, and they didn't. So I think, you know, this is a, absolutely a measure of last uh, resort. I think it's a political hot potato. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and and so I think that, you know, in the circumstances, um, a, an assessment was made that this was necessary, but it, you know, to my mind, it cannot have been a conclusion that was reached easily, particularly in light of, of COVID where, you know, that was another situation where, a declaration might have been made, but it but it wasn't at the federal level. Michael, just yesterday, you published in the National Post uh, an opinion piece. People can read it. Obviously, NationalPost.com. The headline uh, reads, Freedom Convoy Exposed Canada's Barely Functioning Federalism. Uh, now, barely functioning is, I, I think, uh, a candid academic analysis. A, a politician's analysis might be Canada's broken. Is it? I wouldn't say broken. I would say faltering for sure. Um, and I think on that point, if you if you think about our politicians reluctant to mobilize the Emergencies Act, if you need any more evidence, they were reluctant to use even their ordinary powers uh, at the municipal level, provincial level and federal level. This was such an unpopular set of issues, COVID-19 mandates, not wanting to be seen on the wrong side of the protest. So absolutely, they're afraid to use the Emergencies Act, and they're so afraid they don't even want to use their ordinary powers. And that's where we get into the idea of federalism not functioning properly. One of the things that Rouleau made so very clear was that if the cities, the provinces, and the federal government had done what they were meant to do and coordinate their response a little bit more effectively, it's not that we wouldn't have had any major disruption or protest or illegality, but if we had responded quickly, we might have been able to prevent from escalating to a situation of emergency at all. Uh, Professor McDonald, you had you had a, uh, have a great Twitter thread. I want to direct people's attention to it. They can follow you at Vanessa underscore MacD. We have it linked uh, on our official uh, show promotion this morning from our account at Real Talk RJ. You say you, you, you write about uh, Justice Rouleau's findings about the characterization of the convoy, who these people were and what we can take from the sentiments that their actions conveyed. It's fascinating, and I think it's important to focus on. Can you take us into it? Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is is interesting about Rulo's findings in this regard is the way he connects um, what happened with the convoy in Ottawa to these kind of larger trends that we're seeing uh, around the globe right now. And, and so certainly there's lots of scholarship identifying how, you know, the rise of populism is, is spreading um, in, in jurisdictions around the world and that we're seeing these kind of, um, you know, populist sentiments, but also kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 distrust of, of government being kind of a, a feature that's prompting um political activity and political movements uh, at the grassroots level. And so certainly I think um, Rouleau identifies what happened in Ottawa as being connected to some of those larger trends, which I think is, is important. And certainly I think some of the findings he made about the way that information about the convoy spread and the way that the convoy was financed also support this idea that this was, um, these were events that were connected to larger trends. So certainly 
uh, social media proved a sort of uh, very important in the organization of the convoy. Then in terms of the financing, I think, um, you know, there was, a, a, I think, a, a lot of uh, competing information about how the, the convoy was financed, but certainly Rouleau finds that um, at least insofar as some of the funds were concerned, there was actually a, a, a significant amount of funding that came from the United States um, in support of the convoy. And so, um, you know, I think th this is important if we we think about what uh, Professor Lazar was saying about, you know, moving forward. Um, what do we take from this? I think, um, again, it's, it's clear that there is, a, a, you know, a certain level of discontent um, that that exists within Canada about our political system, um, about policy choices, and and that it's it it is fueling um, this kind of activity, and and the folks who are involved in in these movements are connected. They're connected through social media to uh, like-minded individuals uh, in other countries, and and that this is something we have to be thinking about um, moving forward. I think it's a you know a political issue that um that Rulo finds as well that that um you know this is uh there was a, a critical mass of people who are um unhappy with the the kind of COVID-19 response and um who organized to to cause large uh, significant dis disruption you know it's it's interesting the three of you all oh no go ahead go ahead oh, oh just in, I, in in addition oh go ahead Look at, us all, look at us all being so polite right now. Uh, <laughs> Lazar, you want to, Professor Lazar, you want to go first? And, and, and then we'll get right back to you, Michael? That's great. Well, I get I, sick of myself, please. <laughs> uh, no, no one else gets sick of you, Michael. Um, so I think, it, I think that it's important to pick up on this point uh, that, uh, that, that we do have a significant change in the political texture in this country and globally, and that we can expect that this that that these kinds of political crises are going to multiply and are going to uh, it, are, are going to intersect with the increase in in climate tension as well. So that's a piece that was not part of Rouleau's uh, mandate, but but Rouleau the, the Rouleau report provides an occasion for us to start thinking about this very seriously. So we may be looking ahead to a uh, Canada in which you know climate change leads to numerous you know numerous uh, uh, natural disasters sort of cascading one into another. Natural disasters have a way of uh, of course impacting the economy, uh, sometimes sparking disease uh, and and flowing back over and into these these increasing political tensions. And so we may be looking ahead to a situation in which there's a sort of a braid of crises uh, that uh, that are facing this country. And so one one thing that I've been emphasizing, uh, for example, in my in my Toronto Star piece uh, from yesterday, or who can keep track of the days, uh, is, is that now is a good moment for us to have a look at our emergency law, both at the provincial level and at the federal level, and think about whether the institutions that we have are ready to confront these different kinds of crises uh, in a way that will keep emergency powers under the rule of law. You want to go ahead, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. And it's important to remember that in these types of movements, there's a lot of layers. And at the sort of base of the layer are a group of people 
who just generally don't really like or appreciate the modern state. They're not into experts organizing centralized programs of any form. They would prefer to have a very hyper-local form of government where they run themselves and maybe use the family a lot more and so forth. And COVID-19 and state programs for mandates were almost the perfect state issue to mobilize far more people to join this little bit more of a radical movement underneath it. So now that COVID-19 mandates are for the most part resolved, you still have that fundamental group who are just floating different issues pretty much on a weekly basis to see what sticks. So around that general theme of we don't trust government, we don't like experts, we'd rather run this all through very local communities, they'll float new ideas and there'll be ebbs and flows in the movement, but it'll be very unlikely they'll find very soon anyway, another issue that will sort of motivate as many people to attach to what they're on about. There'll be a few hundred people that will show up here and there, protests across the country, until they happen to find another issue that pulls enough people back into the movement for a temporary time being. And what you're saying is just is resonating deeply with me. And Vanessa, I'm going to come right to you. Uh, we we literally, like just yesterday, uh, brought two experts on to talk about the idea of 15-minute districts, 15-minute cities. And this is, I, I guess now, Canada's hottest conspiracy theory because cities like our home city of Edmonton are talking about informed urban design. <laughs> and so they, they want everything. I think everybody knows this already, but but what, what it represents. But the idea that a community should be walkable and convenient and people should be access, able to access services without a vehicle if they so choose within 15 minutes. So we are talking about misinformation. We're talking about disinformation. We're talking about engaging with conspiracy theorists and whether or not you should. I mean, if this is just a loud few dozen people, then is it really worth it? But Vanessa, in your Twitter thread that I'm talking about, I mean, I mean, you cover this, right? You, you you talk about the misinformation and the disinformation that stokes these views and how sometimes you write that it was the vaccine mandate for cross-border workers. All it takes is a spark. And the next thing you know, you've got hundreds of big rigs traveling across the country yeah. to shut down the nation's capital. Well, and I, you know, I think what I would say there is that you know, I think Michael has, has rightly identified the way that, you know, there's always a core. There's like a, a, a very, there's a committed core to these movements, but then also there are all sorts of people who can connect in some way with it. And and actually, I think here the point that, that uh, Nomi's made is very important because I think, um, you know, certainly if you look at the politics around Canada's climate policy, for example, I think this is a place where um, you know, I think this is another uh, another potential spark or something that could keep these kind of movements going where, you know, there's a real tension, I think, between um, the kind of the, the federal goals when it comes to Canada's uh, energy and climate strategy and the views of, of, of people in, in some provinces that are heavily dependent on uh, oil and gas revenue for um, for maintaining a particular quality of life. And I think actually, you know, I think now you have groups ha that have figured out how to mobilize around um, some of these issues. And I think that these are the, the, the cleavages are there. Um, and on an issue like climate policy, where there are very different views about how we move to a greener economy, I think there's lots of space there. Um, to kind of deepen polarization. And frankly, you know, some of our federal politicians are are staking their political careers on that. 100%. So this is, you know, another piece, I think, is the way that 
um, you know, politicians sometimes seek to use the, these movements for their own political advantage. Nomi? Uh, just to, to uh, build on that, it's important to note, and for anyone who's interested, there's a whole paper that the commission requested uh, that is up on the commission's website on this subject in, in particular. It's important to note that uh, that some of the roots of the convoy, so yes, uh, yes, it, it cohered around the vaccine issue, but some of the roots of the convoy do stem back to uh, climate issues, you know, groups that, that originally mobilized around climate uh, issues. And I do th think that uh, Vanessa is exactly right that we'll see more of that. Another thing we should be aware of is that, uh, is that uh, some of these issues have been sort of pressing on the, uh, uh, our usual understanding of left-right cleavages. And, and they, we, we might want to sort of revisit the way we understand uh, uh, right-left cleavages. Uh, because some of this group has drawn heavily from the left as well as the right, mm -hmm. uh, that we do see sort of new coalitions forming between um, people who uh, uh, may be sort of socially on the left uh, and socially on the right uh, around some some of these issues. And and we, we need to be attentive and not assume that politics is going to go on in the way that it has over the last mm -hmm. you know, 70, 80 years. Yeah. Uh, we may be looking at very new kinds of cleavages and we have to be uh, ready to uh, to engage that. Vanessa, what's resonating with you so strongly? No, I mean, I think this is I, I, I just like the way that Nomi's characterizing the, you know, for me, one of the most interesting uh, pieces of, of following the commission was trying to understand the convoy itself and, and you know, under, understanding how um, the right to peaceful protest, how we how we understand that right in the context of a very a very sort of heterogeneous movement. Mm -hmm. And um, from a legal perspective, this is a really interesting question. Um, but I think it also underscores Nomi's point that um, it's pretty clear that this was not a unified uh, group of people that had a, you know, they were there for a whole range of reasons. Sure. Um, and so to kind of label the the participants in any simple way is is probably impossible and is not going to take us very far in terms of understanding how we deal with challenges in the future because certainly you know at the root of this and and I think you know Rulo did quite a good job of this in his report um you know one of the things that we we need to preserve is of course this this right to be engaged politically to come to Ottawa and to protest policies that you don't agree with this is you know in fact at the core of our democracy and so there's a real tension when we talk about this because this all went so wrong there's always you know this tendency to kind of focus on how it went wrong and on the sort of the fringe elements or on the kind of um connection to um you know far-right populism and that kind of thing and that's certainly part of the story we also want to make sure that in doing that, we don't um, kind of sully what is this very important democratic activity in which in which we're engaged. So I think, you know, just to say that this is uh, it's so important that we we, you know, talk in nuanced ways about um, how these groups come together. We seek to understand them, but also understand that, um, you know, we do want to encourage people to participate 
in in uh, in public life and in in the governance of our country. And that also, you know, we don't want to be lost in this discussion. I'm so glad you're saying the, the whole idea of seek to understand. I feel like that this show is built on that foundation. Uh, it's kind of the whole point. And I've had conversations with people. I had a conversation with a fellow that participated in the Freedom Convoy. And he took issue with a comment that I made on the show. It was fair, and I heard him out. But it was like, you know, this sort of t- ties back in, in our live chats tackling this right now, the prime minister's characterization of, of this group in Ottawa as a fringe minority. Um, and, and you look at some evidence, like I think, you know, I won't apologize for pointing out that, that flying a swastika or flying the Confederate flag says something. Uh, It's pretty undeniable. It's pretty black and white about the message that sends. Uh, There are also, though, and I'm not an apologist. I'm just stating facts. People that participated, that that used their own money or, or, or perhaps donations from others, whatever the case may be, to participate, to drive across the country because their ability to work was limited and their family was encountering financial hardship and they come from a place of sincerity. And the fact of the matter is optically and publicly on the six o'clock news or on shows like this or on one photo posted on Instagram or Twitter, it's all one group, you know, and, and, and that's sort of, I don't know, it gives us a lot to think about, a lot to talk about, Michael. Yeah, I think that's huge. I mean, uh, a look at the impacts of the COVID pandemic and all of the government responses uh, in terms of economic impacts on Canadians the uneven distribution of consequences. I mean, these things were obviously racialized. They were divided on gender lines and so forth. These are the stories that have to come out over the next couple of years. And then we start thinking about just very sensible plans, um, you know, of of competent municipal, provincial and federal government to hopefully redraw some people who have lost confidence in the state back into the democratic fold. Michael, before, like, and, and I know we're running a bit into overtime. If any of you have to go, we understand. I just, we'll wrap this up soon. We asked you to stay till 1130 Eastern, and I know we're up against that clock. But Michael, as I introduced you, I pointed out that you, your, your criminology work at the University of Ottawa, you specialize in the politics of policing and security. This was not a good look uh, on the Ottawa Police Service. This was not a good look, essentially, on, on, on policing across the country, if I'm being honest here. What's something that no. the average citizen should take away from not just this report and the findings, but like, what's your educated perspective on a takeaway here? Uh, the biggest one is to pay attention to civilian oversight bodies for police. They have a lot more authority and powers uh, than many people assume. And if c- citizens want to do anything, they should push those organizations to really hold the police to good planning use of their resources is there anything anybody wants to add to the mix that we haven't covered before i thank you for your time i'd hate to leave something important on the table without addressing it yeah professor lazar i just want to hammer this one more time i've been doing it a lot over the last few days but that's because i think it's critically important uh citizens we need to turn our attention to the provincial emergency legislation there are you know we've been focused on this federal legislation uh, and, uh, you know, that, that because it was a bit of a shocker, you know, that, that this uh, that there was this federal state of emergency, but there are provincial states of emergency very frequently and they're only going to get more frequent. And those provincial laws have very little accountability. All those layers I talked about at the beginning that the federal law has, the provincial laws do not have. So citizens take this opportunity to press your representatives at the provincial level to reform those provincial emergency laws. We've seen from the federal law that you can have uh, effective emergency power that remains within uh, the scope of the rule of law. Let's demand that, that at the provincial level as well. 
You think that that would happen in our home province of Alberta? Do you, do you perceive that being a top priority in Alberta right now? Are you asking me? <laughs> I mean, I'm, uh, just, I'm just looking at like nobody wanted to deal with coots. And I mean, Coots is the one, like, as far as I remember, they didn't find a whole bunch of ammunition and weapons on the Ambassador Bridge. They found it at Coots. I mean, people are facing charges, conspiracy to, mur- conspiracy to murder RCMP officers. And yet all it was, I mean, I, I, know, I know I've used the hot potato analogy twice here, but the, 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 the province, our provincial government was insisting that it was a border crossing and it was the feds issue. And the feds were insisting it wasn't their problem and it was up to, to, to then Premier Jason Kenney to deal with. Uh, the, the province couldn't find tow trucks they couldn't find companies that would pull these rigs out because they did there was fear of reprisal there i mean it was an absolute mess uh and nobody in alberta wanted to touch it no not at all i'd say but out in alberta there you're now figuring out if you want your own provincial police service away from the rcmp so you could push your legislation so let's do a two for one we'll figure out what we're doing with provincial policing and we'll reform our provincial emergencies act at the same time it would be perfect. There you go. Hey, see, this is the headway that we make on shows like this. That was Michael Kemp, a criminologist at the University of Ottawa. We've heard from Nomi Claire Lazar, a professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Check out her book, States of Emergency and Liberal Democracies. And Vanessa McDonald, an associate professor in the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law, co-director of the U Ottawa Public Law Center. We're so grateful for your time, the three of you. Thanks for, you know, kind of, do I say dumbing it down into terms that us average civilians can understand? We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, you bet. You can let us know what you thought about this Real Talk Roundtable presented by Urban Timber. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. Of course, our email inbox goes without saying, is monitored by our team. And while we try to respond to every email we receive, uh, we certainly can make you the promise we do read every single one. If you're watching this from across the country and you're a professional engineer, I want to draw your attention to apexautomation.ca. You know, they're they're proudly based out of Edmonton, but they have field offices literally across North America, in particular Canada and the United States. But they're drawing the most talented professional engineers and automation experts from around the world. They've tripled their team size in the past couple of years, and they're currently wide open on the hiring front. You can check out apexautomation.ca to learn more about career opportunities and some of the projects that you could be working on. They span different industries, energy, tech, obviously AI, mining, uh, chemical facilities, power generation, you name it, they automate it at apexautomation.ca. You can check out some of the specific work they're doing in automation, fascinating stuff. That's why so many people are bringing their careers over to Apex Automation. Wanted to mention Park Power this morning in a reminder. I saw somebody in the live chat. I'm not picking on you. I don't even remember your name. But somebody said, you know, we're seriously considering bringing our business over to Park Power. What are you waiting for? You're paying too much right now. You can compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet. Takes two minutes to do at parkpower.ca. And the sign-up process is so seamless. You can learn about their company how to switch included by visiting parkpower.ca. It really is easy. You fill out the online sign-up form. You have a quick chat with their customer support team. That's what we did when we brought our business over to Park Power. And right now, 
now, there's never been a better time to do it. They have a bundle promo specifically for Real Talkers. That's right. The promo code RealTalk23, RealTalk23, knocks 50 bucks off your first bill for each of the utilities you bring over. So if you go electricity, natural gas, and internet, $150 knocked off your first bill. How's that? That's just one of the reasons why we recommend you do business with Park Power. At Eden Landscaping, their business is bringing outdoor spaces to life. A custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. Trust your landscape redesign to Eden Landscaping. Do you have a brand new house that didn't come with anything, not even sod? Or do you maybe have a property that could use a bit of a facelift? Maybe a bit more curb appeal? Regardless of what your budget is, Edom Landscaping brings full project management to the table. There is not a construction problem they cannot solve. That's right. That's their business is finding solutions and bringing your outdoor space to life. You can reach out and start that conversation with them today at landscapeedmonton.ca. And hey, calling all old-fashioned lovers, if you're looking for the latest and greatest when it comes to maple bourbon, can I draw your attention to whiskeydrop.ca? Click on the search tab and punch in Real Talk. That's going to take you directly to our cask number two, a special release from me and the team at Broken Barrel, a wonderful distillery that actually smashes up. They use sledgehammers and they smash up old barrels that were holding maple syrup. Can you imagine the flavor that that wood holds? They get these splinters, they're called staves, and they dump those maple-infused staves into virgin oak barrels where this bourbon is aged. It's a limited release. It's going to sell out soon. You can go to whiskeydrop.ca today to order yours. They'll ship it across the country. It's the Real Talk cask number two, Broken Barrel Maple Bourbon in partnership with the team at PWS Imports. Well, every Friday, uh, thanks to our friends at Local Environmental Services, we give you a chance to blow off a little steam, to, to take what you're feeling and make sure that thousands of people hear it. It's a tradition we call Trash Talk! And this one from Tanya, who says, Real Talkers, one year ago today, a pathetic little man squirreled away in his bunker, took to the airwaves to lay the groundwork for committing war and genocide against his neighbor. The tanks and missiles and shock troops quickly followed to begin Russia's three-day special operation against the people and nation of Ukraine. And here we are a year later, a year where we've witnessed horror after horror of death, rape, torture, destruction, kidnapping and war crime after war crime committed by Russians and their allies who refuse to turn their backs on an imperialistic and colonial worldview. We have similarly seen heroism and resistance and defiance and resolve from the people of Ukraine and their supporters around the world, true defenders of freedom and democracy. So on this, the 24th of February, 2023, Nine years after their revolution of dignity dumped a corrupt puppet government and one year into the fully-throated invasion to destroy them on behalf of the people of Ukraine and defenders of democracy everywhere. Fuck you, Putin. Fuck you, Russia. Glory to Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. That's from Tanya. I love it. How about this one from Danny, the disgruntled oil field wife? She says, here's a good one for you, real talk. 
Slave Lake United Conservative Party politics have run amok again. Yes, again, with what could be called the weakest vetting of a politician since Joe Biden passed his medical. Woo! It's Alberta. We all love a good redneck politician, but this one's gone too far for this, mama. I don't care what you do behind closed doors with consenting adults, but apparently Martine Carafel, the UCP candidate nominee, well, she does, so much so as to publicly berate the pride flag and then blame it on her religion. I guess the Pope maybe missed the message on that one. Beyond the clear homophobic tendency, she's also publicly called Dr. Teresa Tam a monkey. Seriously, none of this is a public citizen, but as an assistant to the ever-missing Slave Lake MLA Pat Rain. We cancel comedians for less than this. I guess Slave Lake politicians have become a joke anyway. Pat Rain to his assistant, Martine Carafel. What a look for the heart of Northern Alberta and for Alberta's energy sector. This is what you call a vetting process? Two duds in a row? Who is this local UCP board? 84-year-old retirees that don't know how to turn on a computer? Danny! Maybe we should bring the information back on floppy disks, and we might have better luck in choosing a rep that actually reps the people, the demographic of our wonderful region. It's no wonder the left thinks that all conservatives are nuts when we roll out candidates like this. I'm 33 years old, I'm a lifelong conservative, and even I'm going to have trouble voting for this candidate. It looks like the Slave Lake region will fall to the NDP once again. United Conservative Party, hey? I guess unless you're gay or a minority, then maybe you don't belong and will openly mock you. I don't know. Conservative shouldn't be a dirty word or embarrassing, but man, this makes me feel filthy and embarrassed. I'm sure I'm going to get some blowback on this from the local party reps. Actually, wait, no, Jespo, you're not going to fax this to them, are you? Because these boomers don't even know what a podcast is or who the people in this region are. From Danny, the disgruntled oil field wife. Wow. And how about this one from Michael? This is the one I was telling you about, Real Talkers. Michael says, glancing down the Real Talk lineup, I read this. How is the average Canadian supposed to wrap their mind around Jamie Saleh's downward spiral? Excuse me, Ryan? I'm supposed to have to wrap my mind around a person who's clearly experiencing some form of mental debilitation? Somehow it's up to me to deal with this? Look, it's not my problem. How about she wraps her mind around the fact that most Canadians think she's a far-right freak and wouldn't give her the time of day? Why do people in the media constantly take these broken individuals and somehow frame their problems as my problems? So now we have to wrap our minds around it or grapple with this or deal with that? Bullshit! How about assuming it's not the job of the average Canadian to wrap their minds around Jamie Soleil or anybody else? How about focusing on the broken person and the harm they're causing and not expecting that it's somehow the average Canadian's problem? Hey, look, Jamie Soleil, Theo Fleury, Jordan Peterson, or some other far-right fuck said something wild. How are you going to grapple with it? Guess what, Ryan? I'm not, right? It's the same as all these people in organizations like Media Matters constantly tweeting Fox News clips and opining on how outrageous they are. Yeah, thanks a lot. I already knew that, which is why I don't watch Fox News in the first place. I don't need reminders from anybody else of how bad they are. I think people like you in the media should take a step back, take a deep breath, I will when I'm done, and have a hard look at how they frame these questions. Even by writing the copy that you did, the wrap their minds around it line, you give credence to these people, basically suggesting that they should be taken seriously by us, normal average Canadians. I think it's all a type of bias 
All media does it, and I think it's worth a panel discussion to discuss how you frame these stories and why you're doing it wrong. This calls for a bit of introspection, I'd say. That from Michael in Victoria, B.C. We love our B.C. subscribers, and Michael, you do have me thinking, and I really appreciate it. You can send us your trash talk to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You could be featured in an upcoming episode every Friday presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. We've got a banging week ahead, including a couple of highlights. Dr. Shazma Mathani is going to join me in studio. Alberta's rolling out its budget. We'll have complete analysis and, of course, updates on all the other stories that matter most. Thanks for being a part of Real Talk this week. Keep it on the rails this weekend, and we'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, account coordinator Lawrence Durlego, human resources Lena Shepard, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Randy Morin, Anne Castleman, Ori Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 